Psalm 73. God is indeed good to Israel, to the pure in heart. But as for me, my feet almost slipped, my steps nearly went astray. For I envied the arrogant, I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have an easy time until they die, and their bodies are well fed. They are not in trouble like others. They are not afflicted like most people. Therefore, pride is their necklace, and violence covers them like a garment. Their eyes, their eyes bulge out from fatness. The imaginations of their hearts run wild. They mock, and they speak maliciously. They arrogantly threaten oppression. They set their mouths against heaven, and their tongues strut across the earth. Therefore, his people turn to them and drink in their overflowing words. The wicked say, how can God know? Does the Most High know everything? Look at them, the wicked. They are always at ease, and they increase their wealth. Did I purify my heart and wash my hands in innocence for nothing? for I am afflicted all day long and punished every morning. If I had decided to say these things aloud, I would have betrayed your people. When I tried to understand all this, it seemed hopeless until I entered God's sanctuary. Then I understood their destiny. Indeed, you put them in slippery places. You make them fall into ruin. How suddenly they become a desolation. They come to an end, swept away by terrors. Like one waking from a dream, Lord, when arising, you will despise their image. When I became embittered and my innermost being was wounded, I was stupid and didn't understand. I was an unthinking animal toward you. Yet I am always with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward, you will take me up in glory. Who do I have in heaven but you? And I desire nothing on earth but you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart, my portion forever. Those far from you will certainly perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, God's presence is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge so I can tell about all you do. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how honest and raw it is. We thank you that as we go through life experiencing all the things there is to experience, that it seems like your word goes before us and gives us language to our innermost feelings and thoughts. And so I pray, Lord, that we would find refuge and hope and belonging in the midst of these verses. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. Uh, a few years ago, um, well, let me ask you this. I don't know if you guys have ever done this before, but have you ever, like, bawled your eyes out in uh, the most unexpected moment 
in front of the most unexpecting people um, in a way that you did not expect. Um, a few years ago, Brian and Linda, Chris and Alyssa, Kelly and I were out to dinner. And if any of you guys have ever been to dinner with us, you know that one of the common questions that we like to ask is something to the effect of like, what has the Lord been teaching you in this season of life? What aspects of the gospel has God been revealing to you? And so we start going around the table. People are answering that question. And uh, it gets to me, and I just start crying. Uh, and actually, it's kind of funny because this is the first time I've ever actually ever talked about this in public. Like, they're the only ones that know. Um, but in that season of life, what was going on is that I was like having like two or three months of just sleepless nights. I would just lay down in bed and I was haunted by doubt. I had this like one question in my mind about the nature of God that haunted me. And it would just leave me like laying in bed anxious, thinking and praying and reading and thinking and praying and reading. And I hadn't shared it with anybody until this dinner and I wasn't expecting it. And then I just, I just lose it. And uh, the weird thing is, is like I kind of was dealing with, with maybe some guilt and shame over over having those thoughts, you know, like I'm a Christian leader in my church. I, for vocation, my job is to like teach people about Jesus. And so here I am having these like uncertainties. Um, and, and it's, that's like, that's pride because I've, I've read so many scholars and theologians and pastors that I highly respect, uh, who have had seasons where they struggled with unbelief. So, um, yeah, you know, it was, it was the pride in me thinking that, like, former atheist Oscar was completely dead and moved on, and I was, like, beyond this sort of struggle, uh, and that proved otherwise. I almost forgot about that entire season until a few of us went to a concert, like, a week or so ago, and at the concert, the band played this song that is uh, a pretty controversial song for them. Um, the entire song is like this buildup of actually Psalm 73. He, he writes the song based on Psalm 73, where he's asking God, where are you? Where are you? And then the song seems like it ends with the question, where are you, Jesus? And then there's this long silence. And the thing that was amazing about being there is that the people who were singing along, it's like they, it's like they had a shared experience. Like we all struggled in some way with uncertainty, with unknown, with unbelief. And I love it because like the song in that, in that moment of silence, everybody knows that it hasn't actually ended. It's about to crescendo. Uh, hope is about to break through. But like, they can't wait. People start shouting like, he has risen. God is good. He loves us. And like, it was just a beautiful moment. And it reminded me of this season of life that I had, had gone through. Um, maybe some of you have experienced the same thing. Maybe some of you in the past have like, had seasons of uncertainty, doubt, unbelief. Maybe some of you right now have unanswered questions for God and you don't know where to go with it. Maybe some of us who are new in our faith 
have only been walking with the Lord for a couple of years, or maybe you wouldn't call yourself a Christian at all, you have questions. What's amazing is that Psalm 73 gives us language for these thoughts. It is this prayer, this song that helps us ground our uncertainty. And today's sermon is called Doubting Doubts. And we're going to answer three questions. The first is, what is doubt? What do we do about doubt? And then how does God deal with doubt? So first and foremost, we need to talk about the author here. Uh, Asaph is his name. He is a Levite. He's also, though, the, he's a part of the Guild of Musicians of the First Temple. So essentially, he's like a worship leader pastor, except back then, you know, like the problem is, is that when we think about Christian musicians now, like Christian musicians are relegated to such a small sect of the music industry, like they're not widely listened to. But in Asaph's time, he would have been widely listened to. He was more like, he was like a combination between like a pop singer and a worship leader. He was like, if like Post Malone and Chris Tomlin had a baby, that actually sounds weird. Uh, if you combined Post Malone and Chris Tomlin, you get Asaph. That's probably a better way of putting that. In First Chronicles, we learn that Asaph uh, experienced religious and political corruption. And it's important to recognize that Asaph didn't witness religious and political corruption. He was uh, employed by the first temple. So he personally experienced religious and political corruption. He dealt with like the people who were supposed to be outstanding citizens that knows the Lord. He knew like church hurt and political corruption personally. And that actually, it's in the midst of that religious hypocrisy and political hypocrisy that he writes Psalm 73. And look at how he words this uncertainty because all of this hypocrisy is sort of driving him to a place of unbelief in his faith. And here's what he says in verses one and two. He says, God is indeed good to Israel, to the pure in heart. But as for me, my feet almost slipped. My steps nearly went astray. Asaph is comparing his faith to this steep climb. And like where my mind goes, I know it's not like sheer rock climbing, but where my mind goes is like rock climbing. And I don't know if, for show of hands, have anybody ever seen that movie Free Solo? Dude, it's wild. This guy free climbs El Capitan. Free climbing is essentially like there is no resources, no tools, no safety harness. It is him, his hands, his feet, and some chalk for like 3,000 feet. And they say it's rated 7C. So like when they're filming this movie, nobody in the history of the world had ever completed a difficult climb of that magnitude before. And it's like throughout the entire movie, you're like hearing from the director and the director's like feeling guilt. He's like, am I going to film my friend dying to his, you know what I mean, falling to his death? Because it's like you, you watch the movie and you like, I mean, you know, you got to watch it in 4K. Uh, I'm just saying. 
But like you get the sense that like all it takes is like a gust of wind, a slip of a hand, a slip of the foot, like a rock to come loose for him to sneeze at the wrong time. And he's like toast. You know what I mean? Here's the point. Asaph is comparing the magnitude of losing his faith to this, to slipping on a climb. He says, I almost slipped. I lost my footing. And he's talking about his faith. And then look what he does. He makes an observation about himself in the midst of this faith crisis. Uh, Verse 21, he says, I became embittered, and my innermost being was wounded. He observes that his faith crisis, that his doubt, is an issue of the heart. And make no mistake, he is not denying or ignoring or making small the hypocrisy and injustice that he is witnessing. We just read, he goes on, the vast majority of Psalm 73 is about the hypocrisy. So he does not make little the hypocrisy that he sees in the world. But he's also self-aware enough to know that the reason why he's doubting God is not because of the sin that he sees out there, but because of what he sees when he looks at his heart. He recognizes that his doubt and uncertainty is an issue of the heart. And that's the first thing that we want to say about doubt, is that doubt is more about the heart than the head. What do I mean by that? What I mean is that we actually don't think our way into believing something is true. We love our way into believing something is true. James Case A. Smith, he's a philosopher in his book, You Are What You Love. He talks about the reality is that we assume that uh, we are primarily thinking things. Like our bodies just carry around our brains and our brains is ultimately directing our entire life. He says that we think that mission control is in our head. This is not true. Like, if you think about the movie Inside Out, like, Mission Control was in her head. Side note, I love that movie. It's a great movie. This isn't like Pastor's Gonna Smash Inside Out. Great movie. Uh, But they show Mission Control as though it's in our head. Like, all of the decisions we make with our lives is in our head. But according to James K.A. Smith in the scriptures, Mission Control is actually in our heart. And this isn't just a Christian way of viewing the human experience. Actually, the atheist and social psychologist Jonathan Haidt says the same thing in his book, The Righteous Mind. He compares the relationship between the head and the heart to the relationship between the president and the press secretary. So he says it like this. He says, if you think about the president, the president comes out and he makes his choice about politics, economy, whatever it is. He determines what he's going to do. And then he goes off into the back room, and what comes after him is the press secretary. And the press secretary's job is to go around and gather as much information as they possibly could to defend the decision that the president has already made. So Jonathan Haidt is basically saying that our heart, based on our loves, chooses what is true, chooses what is right and good, and then our head 
Fed's job is to go around and gather the data and facts to defend the decision that our heart has already made. Which leads me to the second thing I want to say about doubt. It is that because we are not primarily thinking things, but we are primarily lovers, truth is a lot harder than you think. Truth is a lot harder than you think. We think, we act like, we pursue truth as easy as typing an address into Google Maps and then following the direction. But it's more complicated than that. Not that truth is complicated, but the human experience, the human heart is complicated because we decide what is true based off of our loves and our loyalties. This is why, think about it, like we can actually affirm this by looking at our experience every single day. This is why nobody can agree on anything. Right, like everybody comes to their political decisions and like everybody has the facts and all you gotta do is the research. We all have the facts and the research and yet we're all coming to completely different conclusions. Why? Because the facts and the research are only there to affirm our loves and our loyalties. Uh, Jonathan Haidt, The Righteous Mind says that science is a smorgasbord and Google will guide you to the study that's right for you. That's not anti-science. He is a scientist. He's confessing like truth is just hard for us to experience. Which leads to the third thing I want to say about doubt. Doubt is a natural part of faith. Doubt is a natural part of faith. Think about this. Psalm 73 is about doubt. In other words, Asaph writes this prayer about doubt, and then God in his sovereign goodness orchestrates things so that this psalm about doubting him becomes canonized, and now it's something that is God's word. It's like God gives us the words to express the doubts that we have about God. Do you guys realize how wild that is? I think it's really neat, and it's good news. It's good news especially for me and you because doubt is at a heightened level in our day and age. Nobody has ever been so uncertain about what they believe than the modern man. Why? Because for most of human history, you lived around people who had the exact same worldview as you. Sure, you might disagree about things here and there, but for the most part, for the most part, your faith was not challenged by the people around you. Charles Taylor says that what we experience is a type of cross pressure, that because we live in a pluralistic society with so many competing, competing worldviews, what essentially happens is that we are aware of other options, like going to a buffet line. It doesn't mean the experience of faith gets better, it means the food gets worse at least all the buffet lines I've ever experienced. But he also recognizes, Charles Taylor, the philosopher, also identifies that this experience is true not just for the Christian, but for everybody, the Muslim, the Buddhist, even the atheist, he says, will struggle with doubt. He says, and I love this, that the atheist will be haunted by the gospel. They'll be haunted 
by the gospel. You see, doubt, as James K.A. Smith says, is not the enemy of faith, but a companion. Let's like, for those of you who have ever had uncertainty, who have ever struggled with unbelief, who have ever had unanswered questions, can we just take a breath? You're not alone. It's a very common experience. God knew that you would have uncertainty. He gave you Psalm 73. So what do we do about doubt? The first thing we do is that we don't ignore it. There are, uh, there are some churches where like the vibe is if you doubt, you're out. Um, I actually have a friend who went through a season of questioning things about God. And I'm sad to say that his pastor at first was like, oh, yeah, we're here for you, man. And then, like, eventually he started going around telling all the other members of the church, hey, stop hanging out with him. He's dangerous. And, like, I don't want to put all the blame on the pastor. Who knows where it would have ended up anyways. But that did not help the situation. You see, there are so many pastors and preachers and teachers that want to ignore psalms like Psalm 73 because it's not clean Christianity. Like they want Hobby Lobby Christianity where everything's buttoned up and nice and pretty and accessible and motivational, right? But like that's not our everyday human experience. And God recognizes that doubt and faith are two sides of the same coin. So thankfully, he gives us verses like Psalm 73, Ecclesiastes, and on and on and on for our good. And so we need to ask questions. We cannot let this go unanswered. Uh, How many of you guys um, have a friend who has like 20... 40, 60 unread text messages. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How many of you are married to that friend? No, don't raise your hand. Don't raise your hand. Uh, I don't get it, man. That like drives me. When I see someone else's, like they'll send me a screenshot of like a text thread and then I see like all I can see is 83 unread text messages and I'm just like, what is your problem, dude? Uh, But I'm also kind of a hypocrite because... I have uh, an abandoned email account. How many people have like their first high school email account? It's like, you just let it go. I'm the only one? No chance. Okay, thank you. Because like my first email account, I got it. And then like after a while, there was like so many unread emails where I was just like, dude, that's, I'm done with that email account. And so I moved on to like a Gmail account. But now that Gmail account, I'm down to like checking it once a week because it's just too, like it's just the advertisement, it's just too many unread messages. You know what I mean? Here's the thing. We cannot treat our faith like an abandoned email account. 
Because what we do is like a question comes up and we're like, I don't have time to read that right now. I don't have time to explore that or question that right now. We see hypocrisy and we're like, man, I just, I'm gonna get to that one later. I'm gonna leave it unread. I'm gonna leave it unanswered. And essentially what ends up happening is questions and uncertainties continue to pick up and develop and we never address them. And what we end up do is we abandon the faith that saves us. And here's the thing. When that happens, it's not because you thought too much about your faith. It's because you thought too little about your faith. We have to address these pebbles in our shoe. We've got to get them out. The scripture tells us not to suppress our doubt, but to express our doubt. The second thing we need to do about our doubt is we need to doubt our doubt. We need to doubt our doubt. Look again. This is what Asaph does. He says, For I envied the arrogant. I saw the prosperity of the wicked. You see, again, he acknowledges the injustice and the hypocrisy in the world. He says, There's something not right there. There's something that's not okay, and I want to know what God is going to do with that thing, but he doesn't stop there. As I said before, he's also self-aware enough. Look what he says. He says, the real issue is that I confess that I envy. He says, for I envied the arrogant. You see, he doubts his doubt. He's saying, like, I know this isn't purely intellectual. There's something going on in my heart. He questions himself. He's like, what is it that I'm really, why am I really doubting? Is it what's going on out there or is it what's going on in here? He doesn't ignore the sins of the world, but he also does not ignore the sins of his own heart. He also doubts his doubts by considering the alternative to who God is. He compares God and all of his glory and all of his goodness and all of his power and all of his promises to what else is out there in the world. Look at what he says, verses 18 through 20. He says, indeed, you put them in slippery places. You make them fall into ruin, how suddenly they become desolation. They come to an end, swept away by terror, like one waking from a dream. Lord, when arising, you will despise their image. Notice that earlier he says, I almost slipped. I almost fell. But then he uses that same metaphorical language, looking at the faith system of others around him. And he goes, ah, I see it is them who are really slipping. It is them who do not have a strong foothold. It's really helpful as we work through these issues to compare one belief system with another. And to be clear, There is no such thing as non-belief. There are no non-believers. There is simply one belief system versus another belief system. Maybe some people don't recognize their belief systems, but nobody walks around life without a belief system. And what he's doing is he's considering the alternative. He says to himself, does the world make more sense away from God or with God. 
you know, um, uh, I've shared before, I was an atheist through college, and when I was transitioning towards Christianity, also, uh, transitioning is no longer a word you can use in public, just realizing that. All right, so when I was moving from uh, atheism to Christianity, uh, things you shouldn't realize while you're preaching. Um, when I was moving from atheism to Christianity, I was at one point struck by the reality that I was haunted by the gospel. You see, I wanted to believe in love. And I know I've shared this idea with you guys before. What I came to realize is that like, in, in the purest Darwinian evolutionary process, there is no space for love. I was actually just having a conversation because of work with a doctor uh, yesterday, and they're an atheist, and they're married. And so uh, I asked them, like, how do, you, how do you reconcile those two things? Because think about it. Um, if, if there is no God, if all things is just an evolutionary process, then like you cannot say, I love you. What you should say is when I look at you, neurons and synapses fire off in my brain telling me that you and I should procreate. But like nobody wants to live that way. Not just because it's not true, but because something in our heart of hearts tell us that that's not all there is to love, that love is real. I was haunted by the gospel. And as a matter of fact, so many of us want to believe that God is love, that the, at the center of the universe, at the middle of it all, there is love. But that can only be true in the context of creation coming out through a Trinitarian God. Think about it. What is the alternative? We have uh, Islam, which their scholars would tell you that God created to show his ultimate power and authority. So essentially at the center of it all, at the center of all of creation is power and submission. Think about like Greek mythology or Hinduism. While there's a lot of varying stories, the common theme is that gods went to war with one another out of angry, uh, envy, hatred, guilt, and the byproduct of that war is creation. So at the center of everything is what? Envy, jealousy, anger, right? Think about Darwinian evolution. We are here by random happenstance. We are a byproduct of chaos and chance, survival of the fittest. Dog eat dog, that is what is at the center of creation. But then you turn to the Christian scriptures, and what do we see? That God, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, created out of an abundance of the love found there. See, only in a Christian worldview with a Trinitarian God can we say that God is love, that love is at the center of all of this. We need to, in our moments of doubt and uncertainty, weigh the reality of who God is 
of what he says about creation. We need to think our way through these things, not just hope our way through them. Look at the third thing that Asaph does. When I tried to understand all this, it seemed hopeless until, until I entered God's sanctuary. Then I understood. The third thing we need to do is immerse ourselves in gospel community. Asaph enters the sanctuary of God, the temple of God. In God's sanctuary, God's temple today can be found through uh, communal worship and gospel community, through reading of God's word, through prayer. You see, what we need for our doubt is uncertain, and uncertainty is more of God. What we need in the midst of our weakness is more of God. And what does God do as Asaph enters the sanctuary? How does God deal with doubt? Let's read it. Does he abandon him? Does he grow tired of him? Does he get sick of us? Here's what Asaph realized. Yet I am always with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterwards, you will take me up in glory. Who do I have in heaven but you? And I desire nothing on earth but you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart, my portion forever. Do you want a stronger faith? Do you want a more vibrant Christian faith? What you don't need is blind faith, meaningless, thoughtless faith. You don't need a holy hoping for the best. The only way for you to strengthen your faith is to understand the object of your faith because you are saved not by how strong your faith is, but by how strong the object of your faith is. Think about like flying. Like when the turbulence hits, we all freak out, right? Like when the bouncing starts and the wings start bending, we like, we panic and it does not matter. Like the FAA says that not a single plane in all of history has ever crashed because of turbulence. But you can tell someone till you're blue in the face that they're more likely to die on the way to the airport, or way to the airport than they are hitting turbulence. It does not matter. When the bouncing starts, we all panic. We all get nervous. But think about the pilot. Do you think he's nervous? Have you ever heard the pilot come on and be like, uh, we got a 50-50 shot here, people? Like, no. It's not blind faith. He's not like, ah, oh, we'll see. You know what I mean? Like, you would never get a pilot hired if that was the case. No. Why is the pilot not afraid? Because the pilot knows something about aerodynamics and the engineering structure of the airplane so that he is not afraid in that moment. You see, the pilot's faith is increased because he understands the power of the object of the thing that's keeping him safe. Do you want 
to have a stronger Christian faith, a more vibrant life, what we need to do is increase our understanding of the object of our faith. And the object of our faith is Christ crucified. Do you see that we each have a pinprick understanding of the cross when what we need is a large view of Christ? Man, and this is good news. Listen, like when you're on that airplane, it doesn't matter if you're scared. It doesn't change the probability of you landing okay. You're safe. And that is the beauty of our faith. It does not matter how weak our faith is because our salvation is not dependent on the strength of our faith, but the strength of the object of our faith. In that season of of struggle, I... um, I came across John the Baptist, uh, his story. I've read it over and over and over again, but this time it hit differently. And like, think about John the Baptist, okay? Like he was, the scriptures tell us that he was filled with the Holy Spirit before he's born. Like there's this story in the New Testament where like John the Baptist is Jesus's cousin. And so they're at like, I don't know, a baby shower or something. There's probably no such thing as a baby shower back then. They're at a baby storm, uh, sand shower. I don't know. Um, they're, they're hanging out together, right? And like John the Baptist is in the womb. Jesus is in the womb. And there's this crazy story where John the Baptist in the womb recognizes that Jesus is in like the room, uh, womb next door and he starts praising Jesus over it. Think about this. Like he was the first prophet, the first priest, the first person to claim Jesus as Messiah. This dude baptized the son of God. He witnessed the Holy Spirit descend like a dove. He heard the audible voice of God. Like John the Baptist, he, you know what I mean? He, like, he's the dude. And what happens at the end of his life? He gets arrested. He's about to be beheaded. And you know what happens? His faith stumbles. After all of that, after all that he witnessed, after all that he knew, he sends Jesus a message. And he says, are you? Are you the one? Or should I look for another? And what does Jesus do? Does he like shove him off, deny him? He had a right to. Eight verses later, in the same chapter, you almost get the picture like he gets this note. You know what I mean? It's like John the Baptist is questioning who I am. And like all the other disciples are like, dude, Jesus is going to be pissed. Then he puts the note away in his pocket and he gets up in front of a crowd. And he's like, hey, you guys know John the Baptist? And the other disciples are like, oh man, here we go. He goes, he is the greatest born of a woman. (sighs) Jesus honors him in the midst of his doubt and uncertainty. God will not abandon you. When your faith is weak, he's not going anywhere. And this is what Asaph is realizing. He says that he reaches out and his hand was there 
the whole time? How can we have confidence that God's hand will be with us all the time? I'll tell you how we can have confidence. We can have confidence because there is one who was abandoned. There is one who had a perfect faith. And God turned his faith on him. It was Jesus on the cross when he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Do you see the confidence that we have that God will not abandon us in our weakness is that he has already abandoned Jesus on our behalf so that you and I could have the confidence that he will be with us. What is the object of your faith? It is Christ crucified for you. That song uh, that I mentioned earlier, I told you there's that long pause. And then at the end, when it finally breaks the silence, here's how it reads. It's Jesus responding to the question, where are you? He says, I'm right beside you. I feel what you feel. I'm here to hold you. When death is too real, you know I died too. I was terrified. I gave myself for you. I was crucified because I love you. I love you, child. I love you. Have confidence, not in your power, but but in the object of your faith, which is Christ crucified. Amen. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church Podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you'd come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no dot com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.